from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. The first reading this morning is a passage from the book of Exodus, chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. It can be found in the Old Testament of your Pew Bibles on page 58. Listen for and hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp opposite by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. And they said, what have we done? letting Israel leave our service. So he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with him and officers over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, and the Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his chariot driver and his army, they overtook them camped by the sea of Pi Haharoth in front of Baal Zephon. This is the word of God. Our second reading from scripture this morning comes from Psalm 121, which can be found on page 539 of the Old Testament portion of your pew Bibles. Let us continue to listen for God's word for us this morning. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, during my junior year of high school, I was invited to be a student leader in the D.A.R.E. program uh, for some of the parish schools that fed into my Catholic high school. 
Uh, it's still around today. DARE is an acronym for Drug Resist Abuse Resistance Education. Drug Abuse Resistance Education. Uh, when you're invited to participate, you would fill out sort of a commitment card, a pledge that during high school you wouldn't uh, use, abuse drugs, uh, and then they would train you to go into these middle schools uh, and do a little program and then uh, do a little Q&A. Well, after finishing one of these programs for sixth graders at one of these uh, parochial schools, these feeder schools, uh, the Q&A began, and, and one of the kids, a sixth grader, asked the question, uh, are the athletes in high school using steroids? For a sixth grader, that was a pretty astute question. Are athletes in high school using steroids? Now, I don't remember exactly how I answered, but it was something to the effect, well, I don't know anyone on the basketball team, which I'm a part of, that uses steroids, and I don't know of anybody personally, uh, but I have heard some rumors that there are some players on the football team that use steroids. And I look back on my 16-year-old self with a lot of compassion. I mean a lot of compassion. Uh, gossiping and perpetuating a rumor was certainly the wrong choice. Well, the next day, one of my friends came to me as I was at lunch in the cafeteria. He had a, an extremely worried look on his face, and he said, Tony, I just saw the head football coach and some of the senior players, and they're looking for you. <laughs> and they're really upset. He used a different word, but you get the point. Well, as it turns out, the head football coach's grandson happened to be in the sixth grade in that very class that I was speaking to. He went home. He spoke to his father. His father spoke to his father and said that I had said that every player on the football team was using steroids. Uh, the coach and these players came into the cafeteria well, they weren't really in the cafeteria. They sort of stood blocking the doorway. And I was probably about 50 yards away from them, and I still can remember the tone of red their faces had. I remember the ways their eyes were piercing the innermost parts of me. I could feel their anger. And even now as I tell you this story, I can still feel those feelings of being trapped, feeling confined, feeling like your life is going to end today, <laughs> feeling totally and utterly helpless. His, his players kind of stood behind him like mafia henchmen waiting for me to come near to them. And so I, I just waited. At this point, I was waiting by myself. Everybody left the table I was sitting at for lunch, and I waited, and I waited, thinking that maybe they, would, they would, would leave, but sure enough, the bell rang. It rang ever so loudly, and I stood up, and I began to walk to that doorway. It's the only way out of the cafeteria toward my next class, and I walked as slow as a human being can walk. I mean like bridesmaid slow. And those feelings intensified, the feelings of being trapped, feeling like there's no way out, feeling like what I had said 
was now coming back at me. Thought, who's going to save me? How am I going to get out of it? And to my surprise, the disciplinarian showed up. And I was still far enough away from the coach and the players to have heard what he had said, but he said something to them. I never found out. I, to this day, I have no idea what he said, but whatever he said made them sort of move out of the way. And as I approached, they let me pass. Now, their faces were still red. Their anger was still tangible. They stared me down, but I can tell you that no verbal or physical or social harm came to me. I have no idea what that man said to them. But the ramifications of my actions and this uh, rumor mill that was exaggerated tenfold, well, I was relieved. I didn't face those consequences, that trap, that being closed in, that feeling of being overtaken had dissipated. At this point in our Lenten journey, as we continue to trace the steps of the liberated yet vulnerable and wilderness-wandering people of God, we come to a critical juncture in this story. The narrator wants to make it clear that Pharaoh and his henchmen are standing in the doorway. The bell has rung. And the homecoming path, the path to the land God had promised, now had a serious impediment. The writer actually uses three very specific words to describe what is taking place here. The first word is uh, being closed off or being shut out. The narrator says the wilderness and the sea had closed the people off. The word for closed in Hebrew is sagar, and it means to have something shut. It's actually, interestingly enough, the same word that is applied to the barrenness of Hannah. The text, the scriptures say that, that Hannah's womb was shut off was closed from, from bringing life into the world, and only by an act of God is Hannah able to conceive and is Hannah able to bring life into the world, a life that we know as the one called Samuel. For our purposes, think of it in these terms. The people of God are closed off to the pathway of life. It's been shut out. They cannot move forward. Not only have they been shut out, closed off, they're also being pursued, says the writer. The Hebrew word here is radolf, and it gives the sense of being hunted, almost like an animal, being traced, being tracked down. And finally, this third word of being overtaken, being surrounded, being fenced in. What's happening in this particular story from Exodus 14 is that the wilderness and the sea and Pharaoh's merciless army have the people of God trapped, and they have nowhere to go. It's going to take a miracle to get them out of this situation, closed, pursued, overtaken. On our long journey home, a road we call faith and life, 
I assume that everyone within the sound of my voice has had moments like this one. Moments where what we have hoped for is continuously unrealized. Like the young couple I know so desperately desiring to be parents, longing to have a child of their own whose longing continues to be deferred. Moments where the consequences of our sin-laden decisions are unavoidable and threaten to destroy us or destroy the people we love and the people who love us. Where, where the consequences of our actions pursue us. Do you know what I mean? Where when we make a choice, they press in. Like a friend of mine several years ago who embezzled money from some of his clients, who then lost his marriage, who then lost his three children, who then lost his firm, who then lost five years of his life in prison. It presses in on us. Moments where we feel closed off from God, where we simply cannot believe or feel as if God is with us or for, uh, for us. It is not uncommon to go throughout my week to have some conversation with someone who expresses where they are right now in terms of their faith when where they are is really on the precipice of doubt. They simply cannot believe that God is with them and for them. There are moments where we have nowhere to go, literally, as it is for far too many of our friends who make underpasses and bridges and shelters their home. Moments where we are stuck and overwhelmed by the circumstances of our lives, like the single mother I know, working two jobs, paying college tuition, all the while trying to make ends meet. Moments where we are pursued by depression or addiction or abuse or illness or grief. Each and every week our, our pastors get together on Monday morning at 10 o'clock and we, we take about an hour to talk about the stories we've heard or the conversations we've had with this community and beyond. And so many stories we tell are connected to these things that are pressing in on our brothers and sisters within this community of faith. We tell these stories to one another time and time again as we prepare for ministries of care. There are moments where the pressures and expectations we live under paralyze us and actually rob us of joy. We have everything we want. We have the schedules full the way we want them to be. We have life the way we want it. We have the bank account just right, and yet we lack joy. Because the pressures of maintaining that life are so difficult and so challenging. I think about our young people, our high school students, our middle school students in particular, who question our talk, right? When we say, uh, we love you no matter your grades, we love you no matter your accomplishments, and yet we put them in these high-pressure environments, right? We overload their schedules where they begin to eternal, internalize, rather, the exact opposite of what we are saying. That you're only loved if you achieve. You're only loved if you are successful. Right? I assume that we all know what it's like to be closed off. I assume we all know what it's like to be pursued. I assume 
We know what it's like to be overtaken and encircled. We know the realities of what it, is, what it means to be trapped. I was visiting somebody this week who had a very challenging injury in, and is now in rehabilitation and will be there for multiple weeks. And as I walk past the, the, the rooms and I see people trying to rehabilitate themselves and, and you can see on their faces the grit and the determination to exit this confinement, the stage of their life where they feel in some ways, many of them do, trapped. Right? I think we know what it's like, metaphorically speaking, to have the sea on one side, to have the wilderness on another side, and to have Pharaoh's army encamp around us. <clears throat> and as if uh, these realities are not difficult enough on their own, when one inserts God into the mix, right, it gets a lot more challenging. When one uh, comes from a, a place of faith, and says God is somehow at work here and, and working for good. When we're in these moments, that, that makes the conversation incredibly tricky and challenging. Right? I would suggest that in some ways, in these moments, when we are pressed and pursued and overtaken and closed off, that in some ways it's it's better, not in every way, but in some ways, it's better to be an atheist, a practical atheist or an intellectual one. Take your pick. Because your stance in that moment, your stance in that moment is simply, well, you know, stuff happens. It just happens. That's life. But at least I, I have control of my own will. And there's no other will from the outside coming in. There's no other will that needs to be integrated. There are no other questions to be asked than the ones I'm generating myself. There's no other desire to contend with other than the one that I hold. But if you are a God-fearer, or at least striving to be, if you're a Christian, or at least striving to be, it's much more complicated because we are compelled in these trapped moments to ask the question, what is God doing? What is God up to? Is what is happening right now in this moment God's will? Is God orchestrating the events of history? Or more personally, is God orchestrating the events of my life? Did, did you notice how this closed off, pursued, and overtaken moment comes about for the people of God? It gets even more tricky, even more challenging, because the writer says that God did it. The writer said that God set this up. God is orchestrating all of it. The, the, the writer says that it was the Lord who told the people to double back and stop at Pi Haharuth. It was the Lord that hardened Pharaoh's heart and apparently his mind because he has conveniently forgotten what God had done in Egypt to liberate the people because all he can do now, he's only fixated, he's only fixated on how good it was when the people of God were enslaved under his rule. God is coordinating this moment and we must ask the question, does God actually work that way? 
Is God intimately engaged in history or even in the history of our lives? In other words, does God harden? Does God lighten? Does God direct? Does God instruct and orchestrate human action and the events of history so as to accomplish what God wants to accomplish? Is that the God we're talking about when we come together each and every Sunday? Now, for those of us formed in a culture of practical atheism and secularism, I'm talking to all of us now, we may be tempted to read it differently than the narrator wants to interpret it for us. We look at the text and we say, well, you know, a primitive people reading God's action is what's really taking place here. They're, they're just doing it retrospectively. They're theologizing retrospectively. Right? They're reading back God's activity into just sort of the natural events based on human action and non-action on the landscape of their history. <clears throat> right? They'll say something like, Pharaoh changed his mind on his own initiative. And Pharaoh made, up, uh, made a decision, rather, on his own accord. But the writer decides to sort of write theology back into it and says, well, well, actually God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? The cynic might say, well, the people just simply made a wrong turn. That's how they wound up double-backed. That's how they wound up in the wrong place. And we're just sort of theologizing and adding God's activity saying, oh, well, God actually told them to double-back. God actually told them to put themselves in this precarious situation. Next week, we'll talk about the act of God's liberation as the Red Sea parts and, and the people are led toward freedom. The cynic says, well, maybe they just had low tide. Maybe it was just an act of nature. And now the writer is theologizing and writing God's activity back into it, right? I mean, some of us are content with that approach, right? We say we can believe in God, but the God we believe in is more like a, a watchmaker, sort of creates the clock and sets it in motion and takes a very, very long hiatus from engagement in the world. So the cynical reading says that God's activity is merely a theological construct born in retrospect. And it's not actually God working, it's just the way these people decide to read their history. And so when the psalmist lifts their eyes to the mountains, they are fooling themselves because there is no one to intervene. There is no one to help. There is no one to accompany them on their journey. They are by themselves. But our tradition, I believe, offers a word of good news and invites us to read this text from a radically different perspective perspective that I think offers two distinct angles that, that rely on each other. You can't have one without the other. And the first is this. The first angle is this, that we affirm the providential care of God, that God is not napping, that God is engaged in the events of human history. In fact, God is engaged in the events of our lives, even the events where we feel closed off, shut out, pursued, and overtaken, that God is actually working in those moments. We confess that. We say that. God is not dead. God is not distant. What is more, God invites us, invites us, 
to participate in God's providential plan for the reconciliation and redemption of the world. That human history has an end point and it's reconciliation with God. And we're invited to live as if that reality is so. And so we affirm God's sovereignty. We say God is in control. We affirm God's providence in and over history. That's angle one. But it needs angle two, which is this. Our tradition also offers a perspective that calls us to humility in response to God's providence calls us to humility in response to God's providence. We admit, we come to a point in our faith where we admit that we do not have the corner of defining what God is doing. Do you follow me? That, that we can't unequivocally say, oh, I know without a doubt that God is doing this for this reason in this way. That's why we pause and we reject the talk of those who want to interpret historical events like a terrorist attack or, or someone's illness or, or some cataclysmic natural event or even the outcome of an election, right? We, we, we were repulsed in, in some ways, spiritually repulsed, when someone stands with that definite uh, sort of perspective and says, I am confident that this is exactly what God is doing and is up to in the world. God did it this way, and I have the perfect interpretation of what God is doing. The truth of the matter is we can never, ever be certain, ever be certain as to what role God is playing in the midst of our lives, or in the midst of the most difficult moments of our lives. We call to mind the word of God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the tension that we live into. On one hand, we affirm that God is acting in our lives. On the other hand, we affirm our incompetence and inadequacy at perfectly defining what God is up to. And there, friends, I think is the crucible of faith. That's where faith lives in the trust that God will make a way. I love the way that Jeremiah says it, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for your harm, to give you a future with hope. And that future with hope even means when we are pressed in and when the guys who are standing at the doorway actually take us down, even in the midst of death, the plan of God is to give us a future with a hope even in everlasting life. And so friends, in this crucible of faith, may we at one moment affirm the providential care of God and God's activity in the course of human history and in the course of our lives, and at the same time, may we stay humble as the mystery of God's activity cannot be ever defined by us, controlled by us, or manipulated by us. Trust that God is God, and let us remain humble under God's providence. Amen.
God is active and alive in the world through God's providential care and God's purposes to put the world, to put you and me to rights. And we are also invited to remain humble as we are called as participants within that plan and in that ministry, trusting that God is God and that we are not. And now may the peace of this God, a peace that surpasses all understanding, may guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. May it live inside of us this very day and all the days ahead. Amen.